<clears throat> well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, you see in verse 1 that Paul starts with now concerning. There are several times in the letter, perhaps five or six times, where Paul begins a new subject by saying now concerning this. And what most people understand this to mean is that the Corinthians had written Paul a letter with questions, and he was answering their questions one by one. And here he's getting into the portion of his answer in response to their letter where he's answering their question about spiritual gifts. Now, as a reminder, we don't have a letter that they sent to him. We just have the answers he gave to them. So what were they asking about specifically concerning spiritual gifts? We don't know. We just don't know for sure. But it does appear that he was answering a question about that topic specifically. And his goal was to educate them. You see that he says, I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware. And so they can be educated on this subject through his answer, and you can be educated on this subject through his answer. It'll be several weeks that we'll be in chapters 12 to 14 talking about spiritual gifts in the church. And uh, this will be hopefully a, just a great time of education for all of us as we learn about what God is doing in and among His people. Well, Paul jumps right in in verse 2, talking about their former life, mentioning when they were pagans back then in their, the time when they were lost before they were found as Christians. When they were lost, they lived in all sorts of false beliefs about God and other spiritual things, all spiritual living. They didn't really have a firm grasp on this. Paul says they were pagans. What does that mean, pagans? This might be just one of two times in the whole Bible that you have that word in your translation. I found that to be an interesting study this week. There are some translations where you'll find that word over a hundred times. And some, like the New American Standard, like the one I preach from, you'll just find that word twice. Uh, not that the thought is taken out of this version, but that word only shows up twice. It was only chosen for translation on two occasions. But what does that word pagan mean? Well, it's in reference to godless people. When he says, when you were pagans, he's just saying, when you were godless people, when you were without God, outside the household of faith. And we see the same idea in other letters, not just the letter to the Corinthians, but in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul was writing to that church at Ephesus and says to the Gentiles, "'Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, he's saying, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that's a good definition, I think, verse 12. It's a good definition of what a pagan is, someone who's without Christ, separated from the covenants of God, and ultimately without hope in the world. And Paul is calling the, the Corinthians to remember their time as pagans. 
Now, in the church of Ephesus, there seems to be a, a blend of those who had a Jewish background and those who had a Gentile background. And in Corinth, the vast majority, it appears, come from that Gentile background. And in fact, the word for pagan that's found here in verse 2 is the same word that so often gets translated Gentiles. It's the word where we get our word ethnicity. It's the word ethnos. He's saying, remember when you were just one of the many people out there in the world of the nations outside of the commonwealth of Israel without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. He says, at that time, verse 2 again, you were led astray to the mute idols. The end of their worship in their pagan life was mute idols, away from God, apart from God, far off from the living God. In fact, you could say that living as pagans, the trajectory of their life was going in an opposite direction of God. And perhaps some of you can relate to this. Before you were a Christian, the trajectory of your life was without Christ, without hope, without God, and you were actually going in the opposite direction. And this is why salvation must be of the Lord, right? Salvation is of God. He's the one who gets us. We weren't running toward Him. We weren't searching for Him. We weren't doing good. We were running from Him, weren't we? And salvation is totally of God. And notice the passive sense in verse 2. He says, you were led astray. Now, of course, there's activity going on here, but for the part of the Corinthians, before they were Christians, they were being led astray in a passive sense. Paul is saying that they were enticed. This, of course, ultimately was by the evil one himself. Look back at chapter 10, same book, maybe back a page or two. Chapter 10, verse 19, Paul is talking about idol worship here. And Paul says in chapter 10, verse 19, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Well, no, verse 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles, you could read pagans into that, the things that they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So their life here, Paul is describing it in a spiritual sense. He's not leaving room for, yeah, you, were just hap you just happened to be raised a certain way. You just happened to be raised in that culture, and you were just, you know, uh, just a person doing what that culture was doing, going through the motions with that religion. Yeah, all of that may be true at a surface level, but Paul is indicating something deeper here. They were actively being led. They were in a passive sense, and someone or something was in an active sense leading them astray. It wasn't by chance. It was spiritual. There was a spiritual activity involved here. And their spiritual life was comprised of deadness. You see the end of this trajectory back in verse 2 of chapter 12. The end was mute idols. <laughs> they didn't end up with anything that was living. They didn't end up with any kind of relationship of the one who is deity. They ended up in a relationship with a mute idol, which isn't really a relationship at all. It was just dead worship. It was dead living. It was spiritual deadness. And certainly at that time, they thought it was life. All people involved in all sorts of false religions think they're finding life in those religions. But what are they actually finding? Mute idols. They're finding mute idols. They're finding false gods. They're finding a long list of works for them to do. They're finding a lot of focus on themselves. And the end of that way is death. They're really just finding death, not life. 
And I want to take this occasion to show you something amazing in Psalm 115. Turn with me back to this very important psalm, the 115th psalm, and I want you to see what the Bible says about false worship, even idol worship of false gods and idols made with hands. Psalm 115, starting at the first verse. The psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. Amen? Now, notice the contrast starting in verse 4. The psalmist was describing our God, now their God. Verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And now, here's some very important theology for you in verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Every one who trusts in them. There's an aspect to false worship when you are outside of relationship with the living God, where you, though you can function in society, you can function as a human being in the world, you cannot function spiritually. Though having eyes, you cannot see. Remember, Jesus so often would call out the religious folks of His day as blind guides. They're blind. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Well, why is that? Well, they've joined themselves to a false god outside of the living God. And when you've joined yourself to a false god, a mute idol, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll become like him. You will become spiritually dead. And the flip side of this, when you join yourself to the living God, it's not that we become God. There's only one God for all time and eternity. But you come to life. Your eyes start to see your ears start to hear. Your nose starts to smell even, following all the things that the psalmist said. You come to life spiritually, and you're not just functioning in the world as a human being who's going to work and doing this and doing a good job here and there or whatever, but you're alive to God. God makes you alive, and you've entered into relationship with the living God. That's the contrast that the psalmist is making in Psalm 115, and that's the contrast that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 12, he's saying, you remember, you were dead. That's essentially what he's saying. You were led astray to false gods. And that phrase there, led astray, is used in other times in the New Testament of someone being taken captive. So you were shackled up and carried off somewhere. People think there's a lot of freedom outside of Christ, don't they? People think, well, if I'm not a Christian, well, I can do this and I can do that and I can kind of create my own reality for what the world is or should be. And they think there's a lot of freedom in that. Well, Paul here is saying, you're actually being captively led away, led astray. You're carried off. You're captive in this sense. There's no freedom outside of Christ. In fact, when you come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you experience true freedom. Freedom as you could never know outside of Him. 
They entered into relationship with Christ, these Corinthians, and now instead of being those pagans who were led astray to mute idols, they're the church. And that's just an amazing thing. Paul is writing to them, not as who they were, but who they are now. You were that way, and now you belong to Jesus. And for those of us here today who belong to this local body, the same thing can be said of each one of us. You were somebody, and you were being led somewhere, and you were in chains. You were in shackles. But where are you now? You're free in Jesus. Isn't that delightful? And now that they're Christians, they view the world differently. I want to go back to Ephesians 2 and just show you one verse. You don't have to turn there. But in Ephesians 2, verse 13, you get the same idea. He described them as being far off, those Gentiles. And he says, now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, led astray, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so now we see the world through Christ's lens, don't we? We put on our Christian glasses and we see the world that way because we have eyes to see. And Paul says to the Corinthians, look at verse 3, therefore, he starts that verse off in chapter 12, because they were that way and now they are in Christ, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. They now have a new set of criteria. In fact, one specific criterion by which they must judge the world around them. It has to do with how people handle Jesus. Paul says, now that you're Christians, let's talk about a a basic point of discernment. How do you know what's right and good, what's true, and what is false? He says that true spirit-led individuals will speak of Jesus rightly. That's what Paul is saying here. True spirit-led individuals will speak of Jesus rightly. He says, no one led by the Spirit will say Jesus is accursed. Perhaps, and probably likely, in the Corinthian culture, they had false prophets in their culture, out on the streets, certainly in their temples, perhaps even in this baby church, who would come along saying that they are prophets, saying they are spiritual, and then what would come out of their mouth would be something like, yeah, but Jesus, we shouldn't regard Him so highly. In fact, some were saying, Jesus is accursed. And Paul says, you can immediately reject that notion as you're thinking of what true spirituality is, what true giftedness is. Hear what they do with Jesus, and what you want to hear is, Jesus is Lord. This is the most basic and most foundational Christian confession, isn't it? And when you see the phrase here, Jesus is Lord, don't think so much of Uh, Jesus is the king of my life, and I'm going to live that way. But actually, that statement is identifying Jesus Christ with Yahweh. So often when you see Lord used in the New Testament, it's the same Lord that the author has in mind as the Old Testament, all caps, L-O-R-D, God's name, Yahweh. And so this is actually a proclamation, Jesus is the one true God. And that's is our most basic theological point, isn't it? Out of all the things we could say that define what we believe, that's a great starting point. Jesus is the one true God of the universe. And he says here that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, it can be said in a hollow sense. There are people who refer to Jesus as Lord 
Jesus talked about these people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is actually someone who I know. He says, there are many who will say in that day, and I'll tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. Those people do exist. But Paul is saying, no one can truly say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. When someone is saying that, meaning it from their heart, understanding what it means, joining you in Christian confession, that is exhibit A, that that person has had an encounter with the living God. If that person is still dead, they won't speak so highly of Jesus Christ. No one can say so except by the Spirit of God. And let's go back to chapter 2, same letter, 1 Corinthians, back to chapter 2. And Paul talked about this encounter that we have with the Spirit of God who leads us into such confessions. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Paul, talking about the excellent things of God, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives as Christians, and that has changed our confession. What we now proclaim is Jesus is Lord by the Spirit because of God's work in us, and we're able to do so because he has been full of grace and mercy to us. I, I love that we sang today two songs about how, what God does with our sin, one from the standpoint of His mercy and another one from His grace. His mercy is more. Mercy is more than what? All of our sin. His mercy is more. And then we sang the hymn, He has grace greater than all our sin. That's what He does with us. He shows grace, He shows mercy, and He gives us a new confession that Jesus is the one true God of the universe. And so in the Christian life, these Corinthians were to follow the Spirit into gifted service with this basic principle of discernment. As they go on in their spiritual life, navigating their new spirituality, this is a basic point of discernment. So there are spiritual people out there who perhaps have great effects in their ministry. Perhaps they do amazing signs and wonders. None of that matters unless they believe that Jesus is Lord. What do they do with Jesus? That's the question. Not, well, how fruitful is their ministry? Not, how effective are they? Not, what amazing signs can they perform for, for us? None of that. What do they do with Jesus? We start there. That's Paul's point. And this is so relevant for those who become Christians today, for those who come to know Christ as Savior and declare that He is Lord. This is so critical for you to understand because there are lots of things out there you can look and say, well, that makes that person happier. That person had a really amazing experience, a life-changing experience for what appears to be the good. Why would we ever say anything bad about anything else? Why would we ever critique or judge anything else? What do they do with Jesus? Because if they're producing some good effects as we see it, and yet they deny 
that Jesus is the one true God. Nothing else matters. What we do regarding the Lord Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your life, ever. That is primary, that is paramount. It's our basic discernment as Christians when we hear of something, someone's doing this, someone's doing that. That could be good or bad. What do they do with Jesus? What do they do with King Jesus? And perhaps you may have missed this in verse 3 as we were considering these quotes of some people saying Jesus is accursed and some saying Jesus is Lord. We have the Trinity in verse 3. Did you catch it? He says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, as you see the Spirit and even the Father there, says, Jesus, there's the Son, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus, there's the Son again, is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's the Spirit again. Isn't that amazing? And by identifying the Son with the name Yahweh, by saying He is Lord, we're recognizing that the Father is not only Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and we recognize too through the whole of Scripture that the Spirit is Yahweh. We have a great Trinitarian verse on our hands here in verse 3. Isn't that cool as we consider everything that's in the text? And that actually leads us into a very critical philosophical point that Paul's making as he gets into verses 4 through 6. See if you can spot the Trinity again in these verses. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of, of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. You see it? It's pretty plain, isn't it? You see Spirit, Lord, in reference to the Lord Jesus, and God the Father. That's pretty amazing. And this is the point of the one and the many. That's the philosophical point I want you to see in this text. And we're going to start kind of way high up, and then we're going to come back down to the text, okay? So join me as we lift up hot air balloon time. Here we go. We're going to the big picture. I want you to see a philosophical point and then see it in the text, okay? And here's the, the big point that I want to make that we'll discuss. Our God is the basis for eternal, comprehensive unity and diversity. When you think of unity and diversity that exists in pretty much every faucet of life, our God is the basis for that. Our God is the basis for eternal unity and diversity. And we can first consider this as we think of the world as a whole, because philosophers have struggled with this through the centuries. Some philosophers will emphasize the unity or the oneness of the universe. Philosophers will look at at things out there and say, look, everything's, you got atoms out there, most things take up mass, or they have mass, they take up space. You know, there's a lot of commonality to all things in the universe. You can hear this a lot in evolutionary biology, a lot of things that tie us all together, and there's a oneness that they emphasize because of that. But then on the other side of things, you have philosophers that look out there and say, what does a frog have to do with a black hole? <laughs> There's a lot of diversity out there, isn't there? What does Neptune, that big planet, just huge rock floating around in the universe, what does that have to do with the complexities of human emotion? There's a lot of diversity. There's no oneness. Everything, and if you're coming especially from a secular perspective, everything can just seem random. So you could say, well, there was just these chemicals at the beginning. We don't know where they came from. There was an explosion eventually over time, a big bang, and there's a lot of chaos out there. There's just a lot of chaos. And philosophers over here say, well, no, there's a lot of unity. 
Well, how do we strike a balance here? Let me tell you this. The Trinity is the solution to understanding the nature of the universe. Now, there's a big statement for you. The Trinity is the key to understanding the nature of the universe because our God is eternally one and many, isn't He? By many, I mean three, not countless. He is eternally one and three. He's eternally unified and diverse, isn't He? Because the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, neither the Father and the Son are the Spirit. Yet there's one God. There is eternally a unity and a diversity because God is true existence. And all of creation reflects God's true existence. You can think of in your home, just the relationship dynamics in your home. You can think about how materials are composed in the universe. There's a oneness and a diversity to everything. There's a unity and a complexity and a mini aspect to all of this. And this is a beautiful way of looking at things, even in a fallen state, that the creation can reflect the Creator this way. Even we live in a fallen universe, and all creation's groaning, isn't it? All creation. Maybe some of you this morning, when you got out of, got out of bed, joined creation in the groaning chorus. All creation's groaning. Yet even in that, we see that creation is reflecting God's true existence of unity and diversity. This happens all in, in the universe and the world. We see it everywhere. And without a Trinitarian understanding, the nature of all things is confused. You don't know, is everything unified or is everything diverse? You could never have both if you rule out God as both one and three. But if you understand God is eternally unified and He's eternally diverse, all of nature begins to make a little more sense. So considering the church, Paul explicitly points to our Trinitarian foundation. You see in those verses, the Spirit, the Lord, and God. Father, Son, and Spirit all listed there. And we see the one and the many as our foundation for the church and our diversity in the church and our unity in the church. If someone were to ask you, well, is your church one or is your church many? What's the right answer to that? There you go. Good job, Andy. You got it. Is your church unified or diverse? Yes, we're both. That's how God has built His church. We have all things in common. We are one in very many respects. There's but one body of Christ. There aren't multiple bodies of Christ. And yet, there are lots of members that make up this body, and not every member is the same. There is an amazing unity and diversity that exists in the church. Look at these verses again, verses 4 through 6. We see the same Spirit listed in verse 4, the same Lord listed in verse 5, the same God listed in verse 6. You see the oneness there. This is our triune God, and He is one. There aren't many spirits giving us many gifts. There's one Spirit issuing many gifts. There aren't many lords giving out many ministries, one Lord giving many ministries. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are but one God. In John chapter 10, Jesus taught this. He said, I and the Father are one. And then what did the Jews do? They picked up stones to stone Him because, it says in the text, He was making Himself equal with God. Well, yeah, that's Jesus' teaching. He is God. He's not the Father, but He is God. In James chapter 2, He writes to those believers, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. 
God is one. We are monotheists, aren't we? There is but one God. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one God. That's how that verse starts. You encounter people who call themselves Christians and say they believe in multiple gods. That's a hard one to deal with. There is only one God. That's about as plain as you can make it, isn't it? There is only one God. And He does a particular work in His people. We're seeing in these verses And all three persons are active, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We see this in salvation. The Father elects. The Son dies for the uh, elect. The Spirit regenerates. We see that there's a different role for each person, and yet there is but one God and one purpose. And in our sanctification, we see that the Spirit is issuing gifts, verse 4. The Lord Jesus is issuing a variety of ministries, and God the Father is issuing a variety of effects. There's one Spirit at work, one Lord at work, one Father at work, one Trinity at work in the church, yet three distinct persons. And our identity as a church is wrapped up in this one God. You can think of Ephesians 4, the start of Ephesians 4, Paul writes, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, on and on he goes, one, one, one. And don't you, I hope you feel that. I hope you really feel it in this church that we're unified. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are one. And yet, you better believe that I am not Joe, (laughs) right? And that Joe is not James. That James is not Robin. We have different effects. We have different ministries. We have different gifts. And yet, we are one. And that's the many aspect. We have the one and we also have the many. Notice before each one of the things that are given, gifts, ministries, and effects, it says varieties. It's like Paul is really emphasizing. It would have been enough to just say gifts, plural, that implies variety. But he goes on to modify it by saying a variety of gifts. God gets things done in His church through these various methods. In verse 4, we have the word gifts, and I'll go ahead and give you a definition for that. You're going to need it for the next three chapters that we're going through. And this is not an inspired definition. This is not the best definition, but it's my definition, okay? What are spiritual gifts? They are spirit-given abilities given at salvation, effective for ministering to the body. They are spirit-given abilities given at salvation, effective for ministering to the body, the body of Christ, the church. Given at salvation, given by the Spirit, effective for ministering to the church. This means that all people who have been saved have a gift. All people who are in the family of God, who are in the church, have some sort of gift, and that gift was given personally by the sovereign Spirit. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? When you were saved, when God saved you and brought you into His church, He gave you something, a gift, maybe even more than one. But we all have at least one gift, and there's a variety of gifts as we think about the church as a whole. What about that next word in verse 5, ministries? Well, these words in a lot of ways have a lot in common, and we don't want to get too into trying to separate them too much, but they are different words. And that word ministries refers to particular ways of serving. These are ways that believers take up to manifest their gifts. So if God has given you the gift of service, that's one we'll look at eventually in the coming weeks, well, there are a variety of ministries where you can exercise that gift, right? 
That can look like several different things. And so, though it is but one gift, it can take the form of many different ministries. And then finally, you have that word effects in verse 6. And you might read that and think that that has to do with results. But it doesn't have to do with results. It actually could mean activities or workings. Maybe your translation says that. It has to do with operations. I kind of like the word activities. I think that's the best word for it. And that's really just a catch-all word for the things that we do. There are just a variety of things that we do as Christians in service to God to honor Him with our lives, and it is God who is bringing about these activities when we're being led by Him. So, what this means is that the absolutely unified God creates absolute diversity in His one church. And you could say it, the absolute diverse God creates absolute unity in His one church. It's all the above. And as the church, we exist not uniformly, but in unity. No one Christian has all the gifts. We're going to look at a whole bunch of gifts through this study. No no one Christian has all those gifts. And there's this reality, too, that not all Christians will have the same gifts. So we're not all given the gift of giving. We're not all given the gift of mercy. We're not all given the gift of administrations. We're not all given the gift of leading. And isn't that just a beautiful thing? that God would save us, we were already different enough as it was, but then He maintained diversity as we got saved and placed in the church. He didn't give us all the same mission in life. He didn't give us all the same gifting. At a very foundational level, then, we realize that this diversity is to exist in harmony in the church, just as the persons of the Godhead exist in harmony. We are to exist in harmony, to reflect that in the church Because God is the definition of unified, secure beauty and diversity. This is reflected in creation. It's reflected in the church. There's unity and diversity coexisting in harmony. We're to see that in the church. Now, I want to give us a few more application points here, talking about where this leads us in Christian ministry. And I've, I've already said it to an extent, but I want to emphasize that not all individuals, not all Christians, will serve the same. And that's good, okay? That's that's one that you don't really feel like saying amen after that one, but you really should say amen after that because uh, we're, we're just different. All of us are different. God has gifted us differently. We won't all serve the same. God will lead us all into different activities individually. You think of that word in verse 6, effects or workings or operations, activities. He leads us into all of those things individually. Now, that doesn't say we do it apart from the body or apart from counsel in the body. That's actually foolish. But He will actually lay different things on different people's hearts and guide us and direct us in different ways, though we maintain this unity. You can think of a car. Not all parts of a car are axles. That wouldn't be very helpful. Now, you could maybe lay them out and make a cool design and you take a picture of it or something. But you're not going to go vroom, vroom down the street with just a bunch of axles, are you? Not all parts of the car are the same, and not all Christians are gifted the same. We depend on the Spirit's leading. And that, of course, makes you think of the natural question, well, where do I go? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, where where should I go? How How do I get moving in the right direction? I don't want to go the wrong way. Well, it's been said, again, going to a car as an analogy, God never steers a parked car. Just get going. Find out in your local body what needs to be done. Try it out. 
seek to do something because He's going to lead us in different ways, and He leads us as we get started seeking to serve Him, particularly in the church. He steers us and directs us. Furthermore, as we get going in our different ministries, it should be noted that there will be different degrees of effectiveness. You know this, that not all evangelists have the results of Billy Graham, right? If they did, that would be something, but God doesn't give the same results to all people working their gifts. Not all who exercise the same gift share in the same sort of fruit. And in all of this, we recognize that our diversity is a strength, even with those different results that we all get from serving in these ways. The diversity is a strength, not a weakness. God is absolutely unified and diverse, and His church should be too. One more point I want to make on this, it's not just that all individuals will serve in different ways, not all individuals serve the same way, but not all ministries will emphasize the same things. Now, at a basic level, all churches should be emphasizing the gospel, the authority of the Word of God, expository teaching and preaching. All of that should happen. But you'll encounter certain ministries, certain churches that are more effective at outreach or more effective in their prayer ministry or more effective at this or that. Not all church is going to be absolutely effective in every area. This is something I've been thinking through a lot lately. We've got our five core values. They're on the wall uh, around this room. And there are certain areas where we're just stronger than others. Now, that doesn't mean we forget about the others, but if someone were to encounter this ministry for the first time, get to know us for a little bit, they would notice, yeah, you guys seem to emphasize this a lot, or you're effective in this area, or you're just more passionate about this. And I think that's okay too. As long as, not, as long as it's not to the neglect of other things, we recognize that as we're led individually, we're also led as a local church, and He will lead us into different effects that way. In an amazing way, God leads His local churches into different effects for His glory. And this is an occasion for praising God, not for judging one another, because that's where this goes. If we don't consider these things rightly, we can start to get judgy. And we're going to hit this quite a bit later on in the chapter as he talks about the many different parts of the one body. Maybe you're a foot. The context for that is later in the passage. I know saying that to you is probably not very nice sounding out of context, but maybe you're a foot. Your feet are helpful. And you might look at other people and say, okay, look, being a foot is good. Well, why is that person a nose? Who needs a nose, right? Everyone should be feet. We need more feet. Feet are how we get places. Feet are how we go. Feet are how we stand up and move around. Feet are good. What does a nose do? You can live without your nose. If some of you had the virus, you know that smelling, you don't need it. It helps, but you don't need it. But you need your feet to go, right? And that can be our approach. Don't get judgy. Don't get judgmental. Because God is leading His people into these different areas. He's equipping them differently. He's gifting them differently. He's burdening them differently for different ministries. Let it be. Can't you just appreciate the beauty of it instead? It's a lot less stressful, okay, than walking around thinking you're God and have to critique what everybody's doing. We want to take this occasion to praise God, not to judge one another. There's only one position that can be rightly judged, and that's the position of those who claim the name of Christ and claim the church but avoid service. Because God's given you something. He's given you a gift that you should serve. That's the only position we can sit back and say, yeah, that's wrong. But once you get going as God leads you into His ways, 
we'll just be cheerleaders. Can we commit to being that for one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, encouraging each one as we navigate this spiritual life? The position of ongoing service is the one the Christian should take because our Lord did not come to be served but to serve, and we want to imitate Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for equipping us to serve in Your church, for being faithful and patient and kind toward us. We thank You that You have uh, just done a marvelous spiritual wonder in us. And we ask that You give us unity as we reflect this diversity, that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would be able to navigate what it is You're putting on our hearts as we want to serve You in the body and want to see this body grow and to reach more. God, give us just more and more insight by the wisdom you impart through your Spirit. And we ask us all in Jesus' name, amen.